Let me invite you to return with me now to our studies in Matthew's Gospel, where we pick up this morning with chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, which we will read in just a moment in its entirety. When we left off Matthew's narrative at the end of chapter 2, Joseph and Mary had settled down with the boy Jesus in the Galilean city of Nazareth. And in those days, here in verse 1 of chapter 3, in the days when Jesus was still residing in Nazareth, although now grown up, in those days began the ministry of John the Baptist, which is where we pick up the storyline now here in Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, we thank you for your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. Help us to fix our eyes on him today as we consider this passage and even as we consider John, your servant. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we look at this third chapter of Matthew today, I'm going to divide our time, Lord willing, under two main headings. We're going to think about the Baptist and the baptism. The Baptist, namely John, the Baptist, and then we'll think about the baptism of Jesus. 
So two headings, and let's think first of all about the Baptist, John the Baptist. And as we think about him, I want you to notice with me several aspects of his ministry, most of which I think we should pray will be characteristics of gospel ministry today, in the pulpit, on the mission field, in the marketplace, and in our own individual spheres of influence. Indeed, I think all of these things we should pray will be characteristic of gospel ministry today, though we will notice that John's ministry was unique in a particular way. So some characteristics of John's ministry. The first is that John's ministry was a challenging ministry, a challenging ministry. John was a preacher called by God to say hard things, to say things that would rock the boat, to challenge the religious status quo of his day. For notice that his primary message was repent, verse 2. Notice in verse 4 that he lived an austere lifestyle that reinforced that message. Observe, too, that he wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade, calling the religious leaders of his day in verse 7 a brood of vipers and challenging their lifestyles in verses 8 and 10 and reminding them that their pedigree wouldn't save them in verse 9. And notice that John wasn't afraid to talk about hellfire either. Verse 10, the second part, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verse 12, referring to Jesus, he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's ministry was a challenging ministry. It challenged men. It called sin to account and dealt very plainly with it among his countrymen. And we do need to notice that John was exercising this ministry, that he was challenging the status quo among his countrymen, among a primarily Jewish audience. He was preaching to people who ought already to have known better than the way they were living, but who were living godlessly just the same. And perhaps that accounts for the edge that we find in John's preaching It's been said by someone that when you're preaching to people who are religious but not truly converted to Christ, that you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. That you have to show them that they really don't know the Lord before they will realize that they need to come to know the Lord. And sometimes that requires speaking very bluntly to religious people. Something like Paul Washer's shocking youth sermon to a bunch of church-going but evidently ungodly teens from a few years back. Some of you have heard that sermon, perhaps, or you can find it online. In that sermon, Paul Washer says some challenging things, some shocking things, as the title that has been attached to it lets us understand. He preaches with a necessary and effective edge that perhaps helps us understand And imagine what John the Baptist preaching must have sounded like. Because John, too, needed to preach like that. His ministry needed to be blunt. It needed to be challenging. And so it was. Now, it's true John's ministry was in some ways unique. His calling the people of Israel to repentance was a special task given him by God and announced centuries in advance, verse 3, by Isaiah the prophet, 
to be exercised on the very cusp of the arrival of the Messiah. John was preaching in such a way to urge people to make ready the way of the Lord, to prepare the way in their hearts for the soon coming Messiah. His ministry was unique in that way. And of course, he was living in a day when the need of the hour in Israel was a great returning to the Lord. So there was a specific reason why John's preaching so much centered on repentance, why his message was such a straight-on challenge to people, why his words were sometimes so edgy. It was the need of the hour, and John had a particular calling as a prophetic preacher. But with that uniqueness pointed out about John's particular calling and about the need of his own day, I think it's also fair to say that as in John's day, we need to be getting ready too for the soon coming Messiah, for Jesus to come again. And I think it's also fair to say that in our day, large swaths of the church-going populace in our land need to be called as they were in John's day, to a genuine walk of faith, to genuine repentance, to Christianity that's not merely nominal, but real and life-altering. And so I think there's much to learn from the ministry of John the Baptist as we think about how we should minister in our own day, particularly among church-going types of folks. There are certain times, particularly with people who claim to know Christ, but who live just like the world, or who are satisfied, verse 9, in their family pedigree, there are times when we need to speak with an edge when our message primarily needs to be repentance and warning and even hellfire. Sometimes that kind of preaching is required from the pulpit. Sometimes it might be required with our children or with our religious but ungodly co-workers, or with the modern-day Pharisees that we may know. Let's pray for one another that we would know when such a challenging ministry is called for, and that we'd have the courage when called upon to exercise it like John did. So John's ministry was a challenging ministry. And then notice that it was also a discerning ministry. A discerning ministry. John's fire, John's edge were mingled with a very keen awareness, both of the nature of true repentance and of the nature of religious hypocrisy. Because notice how he responds in verses 7 through 10 when the Pharisees show up requesting baptism. John knows what these men are like. He knows their proneness to self-deception. And so he doesn't just accept their request for baptism at face value. He doesn't just assume that since baptism is a symbol of repentance, these men must have truly repented if they're requesting baptism. No, no. Because notice what he says there in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just come and request baptism as a symbol of repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, that sentence lets us know that the fruit of repentance and repentance itself are two different things. Repentance is a change of heart, a turning from sin to God in the heart. 
But the point of what John is saying here is that if that turning happens in the heart, it will lead to a turning in the life as well. It will lead to a change in our behavior. And John wants to see this from the Pharisees. He doesn't just want them to claim repentance. He doesn't just want them to take on this symbol of repentance in baptism. He wants to see the fruit of repentance in their lives, which will demonstrate that they truly have repented. It's a discerning ministry. He doesn't just take things at face value. He's looking for true repentance. And John is not only discerning about the reality of repentance, but he's also discerning about the tendency these Pharisees and Sadducees may have to fall back on their pedigrees, to fall back on their descent from Abraham in verse 9 that will make them perhaps salve their consciences and tell them that all must be well with their souls because, after all, we are the children of Abraham. John heads that off at the past, too, the same way that we might warn people not to think that because mama and daddy are saved, then therefore I must be okay, too. John heads that kind of thinking off at the past. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, John says, don't assume you're safe simply because you're Jewish, simply because you're a descendant of Abraham? Is there fruit in your life that shows that you are one of God's people? And John is worthier of our imitation here as we speak to people, particularly religious people, about the gospel. We must be discerning, calling people to genuine repentance, the kind of repentance that leads to fruit, And we must be discerning as well in helping people see that their family background, their church-going background, their pedigree does not make them children of God. And we have to be discerning in helping them see other ways of thinking that need to be challenged because they're incompatible with true repentance and true faith. And I say that to you today. I try to be discerning with you today. Don't think young people, or grown-ups, that just because your family is a church-going family that all must be well with your soul. No. Can you see evidence in your life that God has saved you? That God has done something? That you have come to trust in Christ? Don't think that just because you've been through the waters of baptism, for us, a different baptism than that of John, for us symbolizing we've been buried and resurrected to new life in Christ, don't think that because you've been through the waters that you really are alive in Christ. Is there fruit? Is there evidence that you know Christ? Let us exercise discernment as we look at ourselves. Let's pray for each other that we will exercise discernment as we consider others and proclaim the gospel to them. A challenging ministry a discerning ministry. But then notice John's ministry was also a successful ministry. A successful ministry. Notice in verse 5 that John's preaching, hard as it was, drew a crowd. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. By God's grace, people were actually coming out in droves, according to verse 5, to hear John preach repentance. And let's just notice that they were coming out Let's notice that his preaching wasn't happening in a beautifully appointed chapel on the main street in Jerusalem, but out in the wilderness, verse 1, where the people had to travel, 
verse 5, to hear the sermons. And yet travel they did. They came to hear. And let's notice that not only did God grant John an audience in verse 5, but also a genuinely spiritual response in verse 6 from many in his audience. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. God granted John success, great success, in his gospel labors. People, many people, came to genuine repentance under his ministry. So think this out. John isn't tickling ears with his message. He is preaching a message of repentance that is, to the natural man, unappealing in the extreme. And people have to travel out into the countryside to hear him preach such a message. And yet people do come to hear him preach, and people respond in repentance. Which shows us that success is from God. These crowds and this repentance weren't John understanding the marketing techniques and knowing how to work the crowds. His success came from on high. It must have come from on high. Which is a reminder that it is not that we are successful, but that God makes us so. It's a reminder, isn't it, that we need God to make our gospel labor successful too. We need God to bless the preaching from this pulpit. We need God to bless the ministry in these Sunday school classrooms. We need God to bless our witnessing out in the highways and along the hedges and in our workplaces and schools. Now, praise God that unlike the preaching of John, I get to preach from a strategically located building right here near the highways, right in the middle of the city. Easy for people to get to. But let's remember that we still need God to bring people here to hear the preaching. And we may have other natural advantages too for which we're thankful, but we still need God to bless our labors. And oh, thinking about John here, let us beware of the thought that we need a palatable message in order to convince people to turn to God. No. Let John's success while preaching the challenging message of repentance ever be a reminder to us that it is God's word and not our cleverness that he blesses to the good of souls. So let's be faithful to speak that word, the word of God, and let's pray that the God of the word would come in power, as in the days of John, and bless our proclamation of his word to the eternal good of souls. Will you pray that? For your gospel efforts, for our church, for your pastor. It was God who made John's ministry such a success, and God could do the same with us. Ask him to do so. And then let's notice that this challenging, discerning, successful ministry was also a humble ministry. A humble ministry. As great a success as John was experiencing, he still understood and was willing to preach that someone was coming after him, verse 11, whose sandals he wasn't fit to remove, whose shoelaces he wasn't fit to untie. And when that someone came and asked John for baptism, John was humble and reticent, verse 14. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John is humble. 
And then notice that when Jesus urges him that it's really okay to do it this way, and that it's really actually needful to do it this way, John is also humble enough to acquiesce. Here's another way in which you can pray for your pastor and for our church and for yourself. Ask God to make us humble servants like John the Baptist. Ask God to make our hearts have a knee-jerk reaction to defer to Jesus, to point away from ourselves and to Jesus, to see ourselves as small next to Jesus. John's ministry was a humble ministry. Truly, John could have agreed with Paul when the apostle later wrote, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what John is doing here in verse 11. Preaching not himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we need to be able to talk that way as well, don't we? How much mightier is Jesus than I? I'm not fit to take off his shoes. John's ministry was a humble ministry, and it was also a Christ-centered ministry. A Christ-centered ministry. John's great prophetic purpose, verse 3, the reason he was out in the wilderness preaching repentance was to make ready the way for Jesus. This is the one, verse 3, referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's ministry was prophesied by Isaiah, and the point of John's ministry was to make ready the way for Christ. John's ministry is about Christ. This is also why John humbly points out in verse 11 that the one who's coming after him is far greater than himself and will perform a greater baptism than his own because he has come to make way for Jesus. His ministry is about Christ. And notice also that John preaches that the wrath to come, verse 7, the fiery judgment, verse 10, that he has been announcing, and the salvation from that wrath to come are both to be found in Jesus, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is preaching here about Jesus. Jesus as the Savior who will gather his wheat. Jesus as the judge who will burn up the chaff. So we've been thinking about John, and we need to because Matthew spends time describing his ministry, but John's ministry is about Jesus. John would point us beyond himself to Jesus. John's ministry is a Christ-centered ministry, and we need to see this most of all. Here is the ministry that God blesses, the ministry that proclaims his son, the ministry that honors his son, the minister that is content like John to stand in the shadow of God's son, the ministry that centers on the son, preparing people to meet him. 
warning them of the judgment that is to come, verse 12, when he returns. Telling them, verse 12, that the way of salvation, the way to be gathered like wheat into God's heavenly storehouse is to belong to him, to the Son of God. That he will gather his wheat into the barn. This is how we must minister to religious hypocrites, to our fellow saints, to our children and our co-workers, our families, our neighbors, the people who sell us groceries and the people who live at the ends of the earth. We must minister with Christ at the center, Christ at the front, Christ always on our lips, Christ as our theme and our hope. And yes, with reminders like John that Christ, like John's that Christ is coming to judge as well. So here you have the ministry of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. A challenging ministry, a discerning ministry, a successful ministry, a humble ministry. Most importantly of all, a Christ-centered ministry. May it be that we would minister like him. But then we need to look not only at the Baptist, but now in the second place at the baptism in this chapter. The baptism of Jesus. And let's just read verses 13 through 17 again. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, it is highly important, as we read here about the baptism of Jesus, it's highly important to notice here that all three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father in verse 17, the Son in verses 13 through 17, the Holy Spirit in verse 16, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are described here together in this passage about Jesus' baptism. God exists eternally as one God in three persons. He is a tri-unity, which is where we get our word trinity. One God eternally existed in three persons, and we see them all here. And the fact that all three persons are described here together in the same passage, but doing different things, demonstrates that God is always three distinct persons, all at the same time. It's not, in other words, that God sometimes reveals himself as Father, and other times he reveals himself as Son, and then other times he reveals himself as Spirit, as though there were one God with three personalities that rotated around, but that God is always three distinct persons all at the same time. Three persons who are coexistent. Three persons who communicate with one another. Three persons who can be, here in Matthew 3, in the same place, at the same time, but as different persons doing different things. And I want us to walk through this section on Jesus' baptism by taking a look at the activity of each of those three persons. Each of the persons of the Godhead here in these last five verses of Matthew 3. And let's begin by taking a look at the Son. By taking a look at Jesus himself, the God-man. 
What is Jesus doing in this passage? Well, he's requesting and then receiving baptism. And the question is, why? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Particularly, why does Jesus need to be baptized by John, who is baptizing people in this baptism of repentance? It's clearly not that Jesus needs to be baptized like the others who are coming out to John as a symbol of repentance. For Jesus has no sins for, what, for which he must repent. He knew no sin, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we are baptized as a picture that the old man is dead and that there is a new man in Christ. But Jesus wouldn't have needed to be baptized to picture that either. His old man didn't need to be dead and a new man come alive in Christ. So if he's not being baptized as a portrait of repentance, and he's not being baptized for the reason that we are baptized, why is Jesus being baptized? Well, the answer that he gives in verse 15 is that he is doing it to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, John Broadus, the great 19th century commentator on Matthew, says that what Jesus likely means when he says that he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness is that since John's baptism had been ordained by God, and Broadus shows from Matthew 21-25 that it had been, since John's baptism had been ordained by God, Jesus needed, like the rest of God's people, to be baptized himself in order to keep God's commandment. The commentator Alan Cole also presents this answer as the reason for Jesus' baptism, as does Matthew Henry, citing a Dr. Whitby. So Jesus is being baptized here to fulfill all righteousness, i.e., says Cole, to fulfill every ordinance of God for his people. Which reminds us, does it not, of Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father's will. I do not seek my own will, he said in John 5, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus' obedience here in Matthew 3, his fulfilling of all righteousness by following God's ordinance of baptism serves us as an example, says Matthew Henry, of how we should do the same, of how we should obey God in everything. And Jesus' baptism here, fulfilling all righteousness by following God's ordinance, also reminds us that even though we haven't always obeyed God, though we haven't always done what God has ordained, we have a Savior who has. We have a Savior who always obeyed and whose perfect righteousness, whose fulfilling of all righteousness is credited to our accounts if we trust in Him. Praise God here in Matthew 3 for an obedient Savior, for a Savior who in this instance and in every instance fulfilled all righteousness, did all that God required. Let us who are unrighteous place our hope squarely and solely in Him who is righteous on our behalf. So we notice the Son here in this baptism narrative, but let us also now take a few moments to look at the Spirit What is the activity of the Holy Spirit in this passage? Well, we find the answer in verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. 
And what does this signify? Why does the Spirit descend on Jesus at this point? Well, several commentators speak of this event as Jesus anointing by the Spirit, his empowering by the Spirit for the public ministry of which, on which he now embarks. This baptism does mark the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and now beginning that ministry, he receives the empowering, the anointing of the Spirit for that ministry. And William Hendrickson, in particular, informs us why such empowering was needful, why it was necessary that Jesus be empowered by the Spirit for the ministry that lay ahead. It should be constantly borne in mind, says Hendrickson, that though Christ's divine nature was not in need of and, in fact, was incapable of being strengthened, the same was not true with respect to his human nature. This could be and needed to be strengthened. And that's what the Spirit is doing. He's coming here and empowering Jesus for the work that is ahead. And this is a reminder, isn't it, of the importance of the Spirit, the importance of the Holy Spirit within the Godhead and in the working out of our salvation through the ministry of Christ. Let's not forget the Spirit's vital role in Jesus' ministry on our behalf. So the descent of the Holy Spirit here in Matthew 3 was an anointing and empowering of Jesus for the ministry that lay ahead. And then it was also, says John MacArthur, a vindication of Jesus as well. Another commentator, Alan Cole, whom I mentioned earlier, seems to see this as the primary thing that the Spirit's doing here, bearing witness to, he says, giving a sign of confirmation to who Jesus is, a sign of confirmation to his person and status, Cole says. We might say the Spirit is here giving Jesus a stamp of approval. And I'm convinced that Cole is right that this event is the Spirit's bearing witness to Christ. And I think MacArthur's right as well to see both the Spirit bearing witness and the Spirit empowering Christ for his ministry. And when we think about the Spirit vindicating Christ, as MacArthur puts it, bearing witness to his person and status, as Cole says it, giving Jesus his stamp of approval, when we think of the Spirit doing this, we should then also note that God the Father is doing the same thing. In the final verse of our chapter, the Spirit gives his stamp of approval, and in verse 17, the Father does the same. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here is the Father confirming the identity of Jesus. This is my beloved Son. Here is the Father as well, confirming his own pleasure in Jesus at the end of the verse. His own pleasure in that Son. And so here at the end of Matthew 3 are God the Father and God the Holy Spirit doing just what we saw John doing earlier in the chapter. Fixing our attention on Jesus. And I wonder if he has your attention. Here in this chapter is John the Baptist, that great prophet himself prophesied centuries in advance by Isaiah, and he is pointing our attention away from himself and to Jesus. And here is the Holy Spirit of God attracting our attention to Jesus, descending upon him as a stamp of approval on Jesus. And here is God the Father himself drawing our notice to his beloved Son. Have you taken notice? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? 
We've seen it throughout this Gospel of Matthew so far. The great genealogy of Abraham in chapter 1 has its culmination in the coming of Jesus. That marvelous star in chapter 2 came and stood over Jesus. Those sage, wise men of old came looking for Jesus. But what about you? My friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus, who fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of his people. Jesus, who is coming again, verse 12, to judge the living and the dead. Jesus, who will gather his wheat into the heavenly barn when he comes again. Fix your eyes on him in repentance and in faith, and you will be that wheat. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you will someday see this Jesus face to face.